25% of the Valley Christian Academy football team is made up of students from this church. And they, well, that's not the, the good news. <laughs> that might not mean anything. But they won their uh, season opener yesterday against a school that is 20 times their size, 46 to 27. That's a good thing. And that is why my voice sounds funny. <laughs> the book of Zechariah, it is the longest of all the 12 minor prophets, and we began studying this prophet's message last week. Uh, his message to the deeply discouraged and disobedient people of Israel. We began looking at it last week, and we will pick it up again today. Last Sunday, we looked at eight visions that God gave Zechariah, visions of a bright future that were meant to motivate his listeners to obey God and finish rebuilding the temple. His main point for those Jews, his central message was and is, be encouraged, the all-powerful God is with you, working for your good. And that brings us this morning to chapters 7 and 8, which are two sermons with a central message consistent with the rest of the book. Be encouraged. The all-powerful God is with you, working for your good. In this text, we will see it begins with a question. It begins with a question that God's people were asking. And it is asked at the very start of chapter 7, the very beginning of the first sermon. But it won't be answered until the very end of chapter 8, the very end of the second sermon. And the reason for that delay is because God, through Zechariah, he uses that question as an opportunity to have a conversation with his people. In my house, that might sound something like this. Dad, can I borrow the car? Or, Dad, can I go to so-and-so's house? Or, Dad, can so-and-so come over here? And I often reply something like this. Before I answer that, sit down. There's something I've been meaning to talk to you about. I use that question where I now have attention, something is wanted from me, and it's an opportunity to talk about something that hopefully is somehow connected to the question. Not always. In this case, it will be. So you can imagine hearing a sigh. You can imagine seeing eyes roll. But God has something very good and very helpful that he needed to tell his people. And it's helpful for us too. So let's first pray together and then we will look closer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you've given us and done for us, and we're thankful to be here with each other and before you, and we ask that you would help us now to understand the word that you have for us so that our hearts would be filled with love for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Zechariah, and if you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, You'll find today's text, chapter 7, on page 747. Uh, 
two sermons. And Zechariah's first sermon, his first message begins in chapter 7, verse 1. It's going to go through the end of the chapter, verse 14. Let's get started in verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, so this is two years after those visions in chapters 1 through 6, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent, so they sent a delegation, Sharzer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, and here's the question. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So this question comes down from the north, and this is the context. Ever since the fall of Jerusalem, so for the past 70 plus years, God's people had observed these annual fasts, so they would not eat for a day, for the purpose of looking back, remembering, and mourning over their past sin and its consequences. So in the fourth month, they mourned the breach of Jerusalem's walls. In the fifth month, the one they mention here, they mourned the destruction of their temple. In the seventh month, they mourned Gadaliah's assassination. And in the tenth month, they mourned the start of the siege of their city. And these were each days, we're told, of weeping and abstaining, staying in touch with, mourning over their severe sin in the past and the consequences that came from it. And so these fasts, they were a way for the Jews to remind themselves that their sin had been great and God's discipline had been just. Think of it like this. It was a way to keep them from shaking their fist at God. It had been a really hard 70 years. But that's because their sin had been so great and God's discipline, as painful as it was, it was just. Well, they're back home now. They're out of exile. They're rebuilding their temple. It looks like God's discipline is over. So do we still need, that's their question, so do we still need to observe this fast that mourns the destruction of the temple. Your discipline's over. We're rebuilding the temple. That is a reasonable question. I'm sure I would have asked the same question. But, as I said before, the question won't be answered until the very end of the second sermon. In the meantime, we've got two chapters in between. In the meantime... Since these questioners brought up these fasts, God has some things that he'd like to say. Look at verse 4 of chapter 7. Then the word of the Lord of the host came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me? that you fasted? Hmm. And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Pause. We know this. They knew this. We have all been created by God for God. We are not here for ourselves. We are not even here primarily for one another. First and foremost, we are here 
for God. So everything we do is to be for Him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 sounds like it took cues from this very verse. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So God asks him, speaking of these fasts, did you do that for me or for you? Verse 7. Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? So before God answers their question, he has some questions. Speaking of these fasts that you bring up, when they abstained from food, and when they wept, did they actually mean it? Were they sincere? Are they truly sorry? Are they truly sorrowful over losing God's favor? Are they really sorrowful over their sin? Or are they sorrowful over its consequences? There is a difference. Paul points it out in 2 Corinthians 7, a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Everyone feels sorrow. Or godly grief and worldly grief. Here's the difference. Godly sorrow is godly. It happens in the heart of someone who loves God and loves others. It regrets offending God. It hurts over sinning against God. And it leads to repentance. Turning back to God. Now, worldly sorrow is another thing. Worldly grief is sorry it got caught. You can spot worldly grief because it blames. It downplays. It justifies. It makes excuses. It only regrets sin because of its consequences. And if not caught, and if no consequences, it would be content to keep on sinning. 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And the context is Paul is writing to these people saying, on the one hand, I'm really sorry my hard letter made you feel so bad. I don't want to make anybody feel bad. But on the other hand, I'm really glad it made you feel bad because it led you back to Christ. John Owen, who thought about sin maybe more than any other Christian who's ever lived. He said this, If you avoid sin due to fear of embarrassment or hell, you are sufficiently resolved to do the sin if there were no punishment attending it. But if there's godly sorrow, and so I turn from sin and avoid sin because I love God and I love others, that's good and godly. But I just don't want to be embarrassed, and I just don't want the punishment. That's a worldly sorrow. It's a worldly grief. Some of you struggle with this. And by some of you, I mean all of you. The problem here is insincere Religion. As Jesus put it, they were washing the outside of the cup. They were just going through the motions. In Matthew 15, 8, they had honored him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. 
their actions were merely external. And we all struggle with this. We all struggle with even doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Not sincerely, not out of love for God or love for one another, but because we don't want to be embarrassed or we want to look a certain way or we want the praise of man or the approval of man or to feel good about ourselves and on and on and on. All kinds of reasons we might do good things. So God's question for them is, well, why were you doing this? Was it, he says, for me or was it for you? The prophet Joel We've studied his book. He was writing during the exile, so before Zechariah wrote. And he described, you might remember exactly what God is looking for. We sin, and here's what God is looking for, Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, even now, and the context is, you've just screwed up really bad. Yet even now... Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and with mourning. That's godly sorrow. And rend your hearts and not your garments. That is inwardly, not just outwardly. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. The sequence of this, from sin and back to God, the sequence of that in your soul, it goes like this. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. It starts with confrontation. You've sinned and you're confronted. Sometimes the Holy Spirit just does it. Sometimes it's through the words of a friend that loves you, or a parent that loves you, or a child that loves you. Sometimes it's through reading God's word. Sometimes it's through a sermon. But you get confronted. Confrontation. Confrontation, then conviction. I'm guilty of that. I agree. From conviction to confession. I'm admitting this before God and others. I have sinned. From confession to contrition. Godly sorrow, contrition. I feel bad for this. I hate that I did this. I regret that I said that. I have no excuse. I have no one to blame. I can't downplay this. It's as bad as it looks. It's as bad as it sounded. From contrition to commitment. From commitment to change. By the grace of God, this is how we are moved from sin and back to God. And that's what was happening with these Jews. In verses 8 through 10 of chapter 7, God describes the changed life that he was looking for. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. That's the change that God was looking for. Apparently, he had not seen it yet, and so he questions the sincerity of their fasts. In 2011, when Kim Jong-il died, the North Korean dictator, his son, the now reigning dictator, ordered imprisonment and execution for all citizens that were not weeping and wailing loud enough. God says, I've seen you abstain from food. I've seen you say the right words. I've heard your weeping on these four days out of the year. 
Did you mean it? Was that an overflow of your heart? In the closing verses of this first sermon, God reminds the people that this problem, insincere religion, was the sin that got them in this mess in the first place. Verse 11, but they, that is former generations, refused to pay attention, turned a stubborn shoulder, and stopped their ears that they may not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard. You hear that? This is an inward problem. Things may have looked all right on the outside. They're, celebra- they're, they're mourning at these fasts. But their hearts, they made them diamond hard. Lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. So see, it's just outward religion. There's a lot of that still today. It was just outward religion. And so what did God do in those former days? Verse 12, therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro. And the pleasant land was made desolate. That's the end of Sermon 1. Looks like God's going after conviction, contrition. You picture what God is saying And we see this over and over again in Scripture. God saying to his people, I had you. I had you. Loving you, providing for you, protecting you, and you persisted in your sin. You ignored my warnings. So I I gave you over. I, I let you go. I disciplined you. I I handed you over to the consequences of your actions that you might learn that sin leads to misery and death, but I lead to joy and life. He's holding them Handing them over to their sin. This is his discipline that he might bring them back. That they would learn this lesson and return to him. This would be a good time for you and I to pause and ask ourselves if God's discipline has done its job in my life. Has God's discipline done its job in my life? Christian, God introduces pain into your life for your good. If you had godly parents, they did the same thing. If you are a godly parent, you do the same thing. You introduce it. You introduce pain into the life of your children for their good. God introduces pain into the lives of those he loves for their good. Hebrews 12, 6. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So has discipline, Hebrews 12, 11, has discipline, though painful at the time, Has it done its work in yielding the peaceful fruit of righteousness in you? Has it changed you? If not, you have two choices. Number one, buckle up. Because if God loves you, And he's introduced discipline into your life. He's introduced pain into your life that you may learn. And you've spurned it and you've ignored it and you've persisted. Then more discipline is coming. 
He loves you. He's not going to let you keep heading into this thing that ultimately is not going to lead to your joy and His glory, no matter how good it feels at the time. And His discipline is going to get harder and harder, more and more painful, and more and more severe. So if you're content to just keep on doing it, then I would just say, buckle up. Or two, humble yourselves. Humble yourself before God and others. I'm pleading with you. Humble yourself before God and others sincerely and sorrowfully confess your sin. Proverbs 28:13 He who conceals his sin will not prosper. God will not be mocked. And he loves you too much. So sincerely and sorrowfully confess your sin to God and to others. Yes, we are to confess our sins to one another. And not just the sin against the person we've sinned against. Christians, we need to be people who are open and transparent about our sin with each other. This is not just between you and God. This is between you and Christ and his body. And that is for your good. Well, then what? Conviction. Contrition. Confession. Well, that's what the second sermon is about. These Jews, they needed to see this ugly and dark and destructive sin. And then they needed to look to God and see their gracious and merciful Father. And so now, in the second sermon, let's look at chapter 8. That's what Zechariah does. He turns their attention from dark, destructive, ugly sin and to their gracious and merciful God. That's what we need to do. Constantly, right? It's look in and look up. It's look in and look up. We look in to see our sinfulness. We look in to see our frailty. We look in to see our dependence. We don't look within for strength. We don't look within for something to believe in. That's horse crap. We look in and we see our need for God. Now, if we just look in, that leads to despair. And if we just look up, that leads to pride. So it's both, Christian. It's looking in and looking up. It's looking in and looking up. And that's what Zechariah does for the people here. I mean, look at what you've been doing, and it's all external, and it's insincere, and it's not actually for God. He's trying to convict them of their sin. And now what does he do? He doesn't leave them there. Where only despair is found. Once you're in touch with that dark, destructive, ugly sin, now you've got to look up. And you've got to see your good and gracious and merciful Father. We're going to move quickly through this sermon. That's intentional. That's to draw out its intended effect, which I think is overwhelming good news. It's just good news, good news, good news. And we want to capture just how overwhelmingly good it is. It begins with a glorious picture of this future restored Jerusalem, chapter 8, verse 1. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. He says, the future is bright. God's steadfast love, it is abounding. And then 
What will this look like? In very practical terms, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. So God was going to save his people. And clearly, he was going to save them by grace. Because the chapter we just read does not describe their faithfulness. Quite the opposite. Having encouraged his people, God calls them to action. Verses 9 through 12. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. Because they're going to rebuild the temple. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Verse 13. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you. And you shall be a blessing. Fear not, let your hands be strong. And now a summary of God's intentions. Verse 14. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not or be encouraged. Rather, do this, verse 16. These are the things that you shall do. Very similar to what he said in chapter 7. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Okay. And that finally brings us to the question that was asked way back in chapter 7, verse 3. Should I, and they were asking on behalf of the people, should we weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? And now finally, here's the answer. Now, what do you think he will say? Stop. You're cheating. You're looking at your Bible and you're reading ahead. <laughs> Knock it off and just think for a minute. What do you think? What do you think that God will do? Verse 18. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth. Now, hold on. They only asked about one of those, which is probably pretty smart. And you ask for one off. You get that. You, know, you come back. You ask for two. You work your way up to all four of these fasts because they're a drag. They only asked, do you remember that? They only asked about the fast that was on the fifth month. 
But God lumps all of them together. And he says about all of these fasts shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. So what is the answer? No more fasting. No more mourning over sin and loss, but now feasting. Celebrating God's favor. The feasts, excuse me, the fasts, had served their purpose, apparently. They were not permanent. The days for looking in had been replaced with days for looking up. So here was my struggle with this part of the text. I was happy for the Jews. I am. I'm happy for the Jews. I'm sure those were four really difficult days. I don't really have anything to even compare to it. Maybe Good Friday a little bit, just personally. Maybe Good Friday a bit. Maybe a season of Lent, sort of. Where I'm more introspective. And I'm really trying to take a hard look at my sin. But they had these four days that were just devoted to abstaining from any kind of pleasure. And it was a day for weeping and crying and mourning over their sin. And God said, you know what? Now all those days are Christmas. I love Christmas. That's what I think of. Just in four of them, four days of celebration. So this one gets converted, that one gets converted, that one gets converted, that one gets converted. And so, of course, I would have been happy. I'm happy for the Jews, but I didn't understand. I didn't understand because they hadn't learned their lesson. They had not learned their lesson. That's clear and obvious. God didn't say, okay, we've done this for 70 years. I've disciplined you. And you have sincerely, there's contrition. It's obvious. So discipline done, punishment done. You learned the lesson. Now we can turn this into feasting. This seems like a bad parenting move to me. Shouldn't God have kept the pressure on? Kept the weight of that discipline until they repented. But there is no evidence that they had yet. So I searched and I thought a lot about this. I could not find a specific answer. But as I thought about it, this much became clear. And I can't argue with this. Even if logically I struggle with it, I can't argue with this fact God's actions here are totally consistent with who he is. Let me explain that in two sentences. A negative and a positive. First, a negative. The overarching theme of the character of God in Scripture. Right? So you read the Bible... 
And God's character, it is complex. He's God. But there are overarching themes about God's character in his self-revelation. Like things he repeats over and over and over again. And so that may not be all that God is. Of course, it's not all that God is. But there are these powerful, like overarching themes of who God is. And if you read the Bible, it tells this story. So here's the negative. The overarching theme of the character of God in Scripture is not, it is not this. God is aloof and unforgiving quick to anger, and abounding in indifference. It is not his cold shoulder that leads to repentance. Rather, the overarching theme of the character of God in Scripture is God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and it is His kindness that leads to repentance. Chapter 7, discipline, 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 alienation, distance, break. No repentance yet. Chapter 8, kindness. Oh God, the implications. The implications on, for me, and how I lightly I look at my sin, and how lightly I look at God's grace. The implications on how I parent my kids. And not only was God going to do good to the Jews, but the entire world. Here's the end of the sermon. Verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come. Even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. What is he saying? God's blessing would extend beyond Jerusalem and to all peoples of the earth, just like God told Abraham it would in Genesis 12. And if you are here and you are a Christian today, you are a living fulfillment of that promise right there. In conclusion, I'd like us to ask ourselves just one question. What do you think? Is our day a day of feasting or fasting? Let's think about it. Is our day a day of feasting or fasting? Well, if you are here and you are not a believer... It is a day of fasting. If you are not a Christian, that means that you have not heard and believed the gospel. This good news that though you are a sinner who has sinned horribly against a perfect God and you are deserving eternal alienation from him, you have not done what he has created you to do, and that is to love him with all your heart and worship him with everything you have. But that though you are a sinner, the gospel is the good news that Christ came. And he lived 
and suffered and died in the place of sinners like you. So that you, upon believing this gospel and putting your faith and trust in him, could be saved and reconciled to God. If you're here and you're not a believer, you haven't heard that before, or you have and you do not believe this, then despite what it looks like, you've got nothing good going for you right now. Nothing at all. If circumstantially life is good, it is just a road that is well-dressed, looking good, with a destination in hell. So it is a day of fasting, a day of looking in and facing your sin. A day of weeping and mourning. And you must turn to God. He will give you a far better future than your sin will. I hope most of you are believers. And you could probably come down with a couple answers to that question and I wouldn't have a problem with them. But I think it is a day for both. It's a day for fasting and for feasting. 2 Corinthians 6, we are a people who are always sorrowful and at the same time always rejoicing. It is a day for looking in and it's a day for looking up. The feast is yet to come. And so for now, we look in, we repent, and we look up. I mentioned earlier this pathway of repentance. You might remember it. They all cleverly began with the letter C to help you. This pathway of repentance. But I intentionally left out a pretty major piece. Well, let me say that again and we'll put that missing link in. Confrontation. You're faced with your sin. Conviction. There's guilt over your sin. Confession. It's admitting and agreeing with this verdict. Contrition. This is sorrow. And we jump to commitment and to change. But that jump's impossible. Here's contrition, now what? Christ. You must look to Christ. Commit yourself to him. Again. And again. And again. And by God's grace there will be change. It probably won't be as quick as you'd like it. Sometimes it'll be incremental. Sometimes it's barely noticeable. But he who began that good work in you, he made a promise. He will see it through to completion. What is completion? It's glory. It's no sin. It's no hurting people. It's no regret. It's no doing things you shouldn't do, saying things you shouldn't say. It's no neglecting the things you should do and the things you should say. It's no more confession. No more asking forgiveness, no more coldness, no more distance. It's glory. And it's perfect, felt union with your creator and one another. Do you have sin to confess? 
We all have been guilty of superficial religion. We've been unjust, unkind, impatient. You have anything you need to confess to God or to others? You have anything you need to express sorrow over? Why not today? Once you do, look to the cross. You need to see ugly and dark, destructive sin is. And then you need to see your gracious and merciful God. You need to see Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, you are the best father. What we deserve and what we get are universes apart. You are so kind to us and so patient. And it seems clear that you leave this remaining sin in us to remind us of this fact. We are dependent on you. We're filled with love for you, adoration for you. Thank you, God, for your word and for your truth. We ask that it would do its work in us even now and in the days and weeks to come. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.